If you've ever been wronged by someone in the church, then you need to spend the next few minutes with us. Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, is going to discuss with us the situation where believers have defrauded one another so badly that they are suing each other. What should you do when you have a good case against a fellow believer and you know you can take him to the cleaners in a court of law? Let's join Dave as he introduces our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 by introducing us to Charlie Christian. Perhaps you've met him. Charlie Christian is a fellow that meets you and he is very outgoing. He's very enthusiastic. He's, you know, one of those people that the very first time you meet them, they have one of those electric salesman kind of personalities. And they shake your hand and they just pull you into the church family. And you start to hear the Word of God being taught and you hear that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You hear that Christ rose again from the dead. And you respond after a few Sundays. You become one of these, quote, quote, born-again Christians. The world uses that term now with great derision. But I want you to be clear biblically that the phrase born again was started back in the Old Testament with Jeremiah when Jeremiah predicted that there would be a day when God would give the gift of a new heart, when God would write his law on people's hearts, where God would create ethics from the inside out. Jesus picked up on that in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus and he explained to a religious leader how he could be born from above. He could be born spiritually. And so it's not a term of derision. I think many times we don't explain to the secular world what we really mean. But from a biblical standpoint, it's a very precious reality that just as you were born physically, when you were born of your mother... You are born of the Spirit spiritually. You receive the gift of a new character. And it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And you're forgiven. And you have a right standing with God when you open your heart to the work of Christ. And it's a regeneration. It's a, it's a resurrection of spiritual life. And that's why the Lord Jesus used the term born from above. Born of God. Another idea is born again. Born a second time. So take the time to explain what that means because lots of times we use terminology. The unbeliever kind of scratches their heads and they think you're talking about eating bugs or some kind of a spiritual fanatic. And they might think you're a fanatic when you're all done explaining it to them. But be sure you're clear. And I think it's very important that we go back to the words of Jesus. But you became one of these born-again Christians. You're excited about it. And Charlie keeps pulling you in. This Charlie Christian keeps pulling you in. In fact, on Sunday nights, you start going over to a, he and his wife's house, and you just have a tremendous time of fellowship. Now, Charlie Christian has a garage, and it just works out that you get in your truck one day, and you start heading out to work, and you get halfway over to Grand Prairie, and you're going down 1382, and suddenly your truck's not going to go. In other words, you're just freewheeling it down 1382, and you step on the gas, and there's nothing. In fact, your truck just starts lurching back and forth. And when you stop it, you look underneath your truck like I had the experience this summer and there's transmission fluid all over the road. I mean, hot, red, gunky stuff flowing right out of the, the front seal. What are you going to do? Well, you get the tow truck and you remember Charlie Christian. He has a garage, Charlie's garage. And so you take your truck to Charlie's garage and he fixes that baby in one week. 
When you get the bill, it really bothers you a little bit because it's a thousand big ones. Kind of high for a transmission job, but he tells you he needed to put some heavy-duty stuff in there. You should never have trouble with it again. And everything is great. Man alive, your Christian brother took care of you. Your transmission's fixed. And you start to work again. In about two weeks, you're going down 1382 again. And guess what? Same thing again. You stop your truck. You crawl underneath it. And you just lie there in the ground. Because you cannot believe it. There it is. That beautiful, ugly, red gunk. Automatic transmission fluid all over the road again. But you had it fixed by a Christian, Charlie Christian's garage. So you go back there and you say, Charlie, my transmission went out again. I only had it in for two weeks. And guess what? Charlie Christian's already spent your $1,000. And Charlie Christian isn't going to do a blessed thing about your transmission. And you know what? When you're out a thousand big ones, you start to get angry, don't you? How many of you have ever had a situation like that in your life? Not necessarily with a Christian, but you've had that kind of a situation. And I guarantee that you're going to have that kind of a problem. You've already had some of those kinds of problems, and it can produce tremendous animosity within a body of Christ. In fact, I have a very close friend that's a businessman in Dallas, and he was going to a large church in Dallas, and he, he got involved in a business partnership with a fellow believer, and things were just going really great until that believer just took him to the cleaners. Took him to the cleaners. And this friend of mine was just furious. Man, he called his lawyer and said, you know, this believer has done this again and again and again. He has wiped out, he has cheated, he has swindled about 50 families in our church. And I'm going to get them. And my friend was telling me the other day he could just feel the red anger of justice welling up within him. And he was going to clean up the body of Christ. And he was going to stop this Charlie cheating Christian from ever doing this again. He went down to his place of business and he was in the elevator and he happened to be in the elevator with an older believer, a very mature, godly elder in his church. And so my young friend in the Lord said he, he ought to share with his elder about how he was going to be the lone ranger. He was going to bring justice into the family of God. And so he spilled out his guts to this elder about how this Charlie Christian cheat had wiped him right out in his vehement anger about it. And the elder just didn't say a word. Just let this young believer just pour out his heart and let him pour out how the court date was set, the lawyers were set up, and boy, they were going to clean up this Christian cheat. And then the elder, just before they got out of the elevator, said, 1 Corinthians 6. And that's where we want to turn today. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you all to feel this a little bit. Because you can piously sit here, but when your roof leaks, when your transmission leaks, when you enter into a, a big business venture with a fellow believer, and you get wiped out, it's going to be easy to forget 1 Corinthians 6. I know that because I forget it easily. Now, Paul begins like this. How dare you? Your mom and dad ever talk to you like that? 
How dare you do that? What does that mean, kids? Better not do that. Look how Paul starts out. In the Greek text, he starts out, How dare you have a dispute and take it before the ungodly? How dare you take a dispute among believers for judgment before the ungodly instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are competent to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases, trivial everyday things among yourselves? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the everyday things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of believers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've already been defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit. The very first section we want to talk about is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-6. through 6. We deal with this area of being competent to judge. Paul begins with a horrible contradiction when believers ask unbelievers to settle their disputes. He's talking to us about the reality of how horrible it is when believers who are supposed to be the community of God, a community of saints, a community of redeemed ones, go to a secular court in order to get justice. He says believers will join Christ. The very first reason he gives us for why we shouldn't do this, believers will join Christ in judging the world and even angels when Christ returns. He says the reason that we shouldn't go to a secular court is that we should know that one day we as saints will judge the world. In fact, we will even judge angels according to verse 3. Now that's a hard one for us. You see, that's hard for us because it's hard for us to believe that there even is an eternal realm. It's not hard for the children in the group, but it's hard for us adults in the group. You see, as we grow older, we get more sophisticated. In fact, even as I'm talking to you, some of you are saying, Dave, I know that's what Paul says, but, 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 but. You don't know the case that I was in. You don't know the injustice that was done to me. You don't know the loss that it brought to me. But, 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 because I do that. And, it, and, it, and, it, and there's a part of me that it grates on me that Paul says this that he starts out by saying, Corinthians, believers, how in the world could you ever, how in the world could you ever go to court to solve a dispute between two born-again believers? Two believers that know Christ in a personal way. 
How could you ever go to a secular court to do that? And then he says, the first reason you shouldn't do it is because of who you are. As believers, one day, you're going to sit in judgment on the whole world. You're going to decide the cases of all the world. You're even going to decide the cases of angels. Now, that is scraping the Milky Way, and I would never talk to you like that. I would never say, here we are, the future judges of the world. Now, we must remember what Paul said to us. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 5, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So Paul is telling us right now, as born-again believers, as the church, we should not sit in judgment on the world. Believers need to be very careful about that. In the present time, under the present age of grace, it is not our responsibility as a church to judge those outside. It's important not to have inquisitions. It's important not to try to lock unbelievers in a behavior pattern where they have to believe. It's important for our church not to become a state. Very important to understand that. In the present time, we are not called to judge the world. But there's coming a future time when Jesus will return, when the kingdom will be handed over, not just to Jesus, but because you will be so united with Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, I want you to turn there. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the fact that the kingdom will be handed over to the saints. Ezekiel, Daniel, back in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. And it's probably one of the passages that the Apostle Paul has on his mind. And let's pick it up with verse 26. It says, but the court will sit. This is God's heavenly court. And his power will be taken away. That is the power of the, of the beast, the power of the nations. And they will be completely destroyed. Then the sovereignty. Now, now we're talking about the sovereignty over all the world. Sovereignty means the supreme ruler, the supreme authority. The supreme sovereignty and power and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the... What's the next word? Tell me, real lad, will be handed over to the... Who are you? Can you say that with conviction? The saints, did you become it because you merited it? Did you become it because you earned it? Can you put your thumbs between your lapels and say, Here I am, the judge of the universe. Can you? No, in fact, that's what's wrong with all of us that try to grab power for ourselves. We're not totally like Christ in our character yet, so that we're not totally out of ourselves enough, we're not out of our pride enough, but there's coming a day when you as the saints, myself with you as a born-again believer, will have a Christ-like character, and one with our Savior, we will be given the authority over all the universe. Do you believe that? I don't think you do, because I have a hard time believing that. Man, when I'm in Washington, D.C., I kind of go goo-goo-eyed over it. I see the Congress. And it's amazing to sit there while everything is in session. The excitement of that. And there's power in that. And I have to be honest, I'm intimidated by that. There's a part of me that says, man, maybe I ought to get out of the pastorate 
and run. You know, I mean, it'd be fun to be in that kind of an influential position. You know what I'm talking about? You want to have power. You want to have that prestige. What the Lord is saying is one day, the Kaplan in Austin, the Kaplan in Washington, that'll be small potatoes for you as God's people. But then there won't be one single ounce of that. Look at me. I've got power and prestige. It'll all be gone. You'll use all the authority of Christ flowing through you to serve and to graciously meet one another's needs and the whole world's needs. And there will be a kingdom that's very hard for us to imagine in which love and righteousness and peace prevails. But Daniel makes it very clear that the power of all the heaven will be handed over to you as the saints, the people of the Most High, and His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the rulers will worship and obey Him. And so you, joined together with Christ, will rule and reign. Revelation chapter 3 talks about this. Those who overcome, those who endure, those who accept Christ and the power of the Spirit moves in their life will rule and reign with Christ. The book of Revelation 22 clothes with a kingdom being given over to Christ and His people. And He shall reign forever and ever and ever. So what we've gotten is a vertical picture of the future. And I want you to realize that if you believe that, then you'll understand the contradiction of two believers that one day are going to rule over the world and over the angelic realms. Those two believers going to a secular court and asking a secular judge to decide their case. That's what the Apostle Paul is bringing out. He goes on and says this. If you, are, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge the trivial cases? In verse, uh, verse 4, there's a little problem in this verse, a little bit hard to determine exactly what Paul means in verse 4. Let's try to wrestle with it a little bit. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, if you do, you say, Dave, what should we do? If we do have disputes among believers, and we will have them, I guarantee you that there will be times when we enter into conflict with one another, where there are some business deals that aren't exactly right, and there can develop intense controversy over that. You say, well, Dave, what should we do? Paul is telling us that it's a horrendous thing to go to a secular court. Then what court should we go to? And the Apostle Paul is going to talk about that in this verse, verse 4. If you do have disputes about such matters, and I think Paul would say you probably will, Appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Now, it's possible that this verse should be read. How in the world could you ever go before or appoint men who are despised? And one way to look at the verse is that he's talking about the secular courts. And he's going back to the point that I've been making with you that it's a, it, once again the terrible paradox of believers who go before the despised. The problem I have with that view is that the word that Paul uses here has a little bit of feel of derision to it. And also he says that the believers appoint these rulers over them, these judges over them. And I don't think that Paul would think of believers appointing a secular court. God appoints a secular court and the secular world appoints their courts. But I don't think it would be a biblical category to think of believers who appoint 
judges over them in this secular realm. Also, I don't think that the Apostle Paul would in any sense be demeaning the secular court. His point in these verses is not to say that a secular court is necessarily unjust, that you won't find justice there. He's not saying that that secular court has no jurisdiction over believers in other matters. For example, Peter in 1 Peter, if you steal from somebody and you get caught, I'll guarantee you, you'll come before the secular court. And the Bible won't comfort you very much. It won't say, how can you as a believer be before a secular court? The secular court has no jurisdiction over you. The Bible won't say that. The Bible will say, how in the world did you get in this mess? And you need to repent and turn away, and you're going to get the sword. 1 Corinthians 13 will say you ought to fear and tremble because that government will discipline you for wrongdoing. One of the tragedies in our own society is many times the secular court doesn't discipline and punish for wrongdoing. So I want to make it very clear. The Apostle Paul has a very deep regard for the secular court. In fact, he himself is a Roman citizen. When it came to defending his right to proclaim the gospel, when it came to defending whether or not the gospel was a legitimate faith that could be proclaimed in the Roman Empire, Paul would appeal to Caesar to defend his right to proclaim the gospel. Whether or not he got justice there, he didn't. He had his head cut off. But Paul did appeal to that secular authority. What I'm trying to say is that the Apostle Paul is not saying in this context that the secular court is derided. He's not saying that some of you as believers should not serve on that court. But if you do, you serve in the secular world, not as a church, not as a churchman, not as a minister. Very important to understand these distinctions. What Paul is saying is that it's a horrendous thing for two born-again believers who are in a conflict to ask a secular judge to solve their case. Instead, what they should do, and, and he almost sarcastically says, why don't you pick one of the least esteemed members of the church? You're going to judge angels, so to handle the, meni you know, the menials, little things in your group, just get the most least esteemed person in your group. Get them to decide it. I think Paul also, because all the way through the book of Corinthians so far, the Corinthians are very proud of themselves, and they deride Paul. Remember the chapter we had, I'm the apostle that comes at the end of the train, and you Corinthians are ruling and reigning, but I feel like I'm the captive that's being beaten up. And the Corinthians were deriding Paul. I think there's a little bit of that feel here, because probably the Corinthian believer that was scorned in the Corinthian church would probably be the mature believer the one that was following what the Apostle Paul was teaching. And so there's a lot of things going on here. Paul is using sarcasm, and he does do that at times. And he's saying, you Corinthians, why don't you take one of those, those people you cut down in your group, the people you don't respect in your group, one of those weak people in your group, get them to decide the case. Then he goes on to say this. I say this to shame you. In this context... Paul is almost weeping over what's going on in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wide enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. You say, Dave, what does this mean practically for us? 
If you get into trouble with another believer, they steal your money, they cheat you in a business deal, what should you do? If it happens in our church family among believers, then you should go to some spiritual people. It doesn't necessarily set up a hierarchy. There's no idea of setting up a court. There's no mention in this context like of elders sitting as judges over their people necessarily. We develop a whole framework here. In fact, as church history developed, a whole ecclesiastical court developed. And it was beginning from this passage. That's not what Paul has in mind. What he's saying is that there should be a family relationship. Within this family, there should be a few, a few mature believers that you respect. And what you should do, if you have a conflict between two believers in this church... You should get together and choose some mature believers to hear your case. And you should submit to them. You should, you should allow them to have you present your case, present everything they need to know about it, and then let them decide. Let them decide. Oh, how we need to recapture the priorities that Paul stressed to the Corinthians. It is better to be wronged and suffer loss than publicly shame the name of Christ by having two believers take one another to court. The recent high-profile cases we have seen should powerfully prove to us that we could save a lot of money and get a fairer hearing of the case and decision by following the inspired advice of 1 Corinthians 6, agreeing to allow some of our mature brothers and sisters in Christ to decide a disputed matter. Join us next time as we continue this study titled Believer versus Believer from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 11.